good to have my in-house special there. Um, so welcome, welcome everyone. Um, again, there are seats up front and in the middle up here, and we can pull in some more chairs um, if there aren't enough in the back. Um, welcome everyone to our uh, second Narrative Medicine Rounds for the 2009-2010 year. Um, I am Sayanthani Dasgupta, I'm one of the faculty members of the MS in Narrative Medicine, hooray, and the program in Narrative Medicine here at Columbia. Um, I'm up here not alone, but thanking you and welcoming all of you on behalf of my colleagues as well. Um, the director of the program, Rita Sharon, the director of the new master's program, Marsha Hurst, Marcia, um, who is back there, if anyone wants to grab her um, after the talk. Um, also our colleagues, Craig Irvine, Maura Spiegel, Pat Stanley, who is also somewhere here, also waving from the back of the room, Nellie Herman, Eric Marcus, we welcome uh, all of you. Um, I want to thank the Faculty Club, um, who is our gracious host and has prepared our goodies tonight, um, as well as uh, Sandra from the bookstore, who is in the back selling copies of our speaker's book. Um, and I also want to particularly recognize uh, Reflections, which is the literary magazine of uh, the Columbia University Medical Campus, and uh, they are um, particularly uh, involved in tonight's um, talk in that they are co-sponsoring it, and I wanted to invite Mark, who is, to come up and say a few words about reflections before I go on and uh, have the pleasure of introducing our speaker for tonight. Thank you, Dr. Kaskuta. Uh, I also want to thank the program in Narrative Medicine for having us as a co-sponsor. Uh, so what we are is uh, we are a, liter a literary and an artistic uh, journal for the entire CMU CUMC community. So uh, in short, we would like to have submissions from as many people as possible. Uh, and uh, that includes students, faculty members, anyone who, in who is in any way connected to the campus. If you're a photographer or an artist or a writer, whether prose or poetry, we would love to have your submissions. And we uh, publish every year in the spring, and this is our, our last year's uh, journal, as you can see. So. And how can people get a copy of the journal? Okay, so uh, the, the journal is distributed throughout the entire campus. We'll have several locations where you'll see uh, in a lot of the waiting rooms. Uh, we'll put it out. And as far as submissions, uh, you can check on the Narrative Medicine website, which is just narrativemedicine.org, uh, uh, and there should be a link there uh, to reflections uh, to the, the email. Uh, I have the email here for anyone who, who can write this down. It's cumc-reflections, uh, and reflections is spelled F-L-E-X-I-O-N-S, uh, at columbia.edu. Uh, we're also going to be sending out emails to a lot of the listservs for all the schools on campus and to a lot of the faculty listservs. Uh, and uh, we'll be posting flyers uh, with the email posted there. So thank you. And, um, you know, it's really through uh, organizations like Reflections that um, the voices of people at all levels of the healthcare endeavor um, can be heard. And so the program in narrative medicine proudly sponsors um, Reflections and other endeavors, student endeavors, including a writing group, 
um, and other activities that honor the uh, critical role of storytelling and narrative um, in training and in healthcare delivery. Um, so as I mentioned before, uh, we're particularly excited uh, this year. For those of you who weren't at our rounds last year, I was uh, kind of perpetually in anticipation. Well, the anticipation has been fulfilled. The MS program in narrative medicine is now in full swing. Um, we are now actually having information sessions and are beginning the application process for next year. So people who are interested uh, you know, can go ahead and contact Marsha um, or can go to our website for more information. Um, we also have a number of interesting talks coming up. Um, New York Times best-selling author Harlan Coben will be speaking next month. Uh, cyber artist Virgil Wong will be speaking in December um, on his work including GenoChoice.com, Design Your Own Perfect Baby Online. So more on that in December. Um, so now I have the particular pleasure of introducing our speaker for this evening, uh, Dr. Sandeep Jauhar, who is a physician and memoirist, um, who is going to be speaking to us both about the process of writing and uh, medicine, and will be reading from his book, uh, Intern a Doctor's Initiation, which, uh, in fact, another author we've had speak to our community, Vincent Lamb, has called a vivid portrait of the culture of a New York City hospital with its demanding hierarchies um, and sometimes indifferent cruelty. Um, and in fact, before I came today, um, I heard a fascinating, uh, I happened to catch a fascinating talk um, by Nigerian author, um, whose name I'm going to forget, so I'm going to refer to it, um, Chimamanda Adichie. Chimamanda Adichie was speaking um, on one of those talks on TED. She was talking about the dangers of the singular story. And I thought that this was really interesting in the context of tonight's talk, the dangers of the singular story. Because it occurred to me um, as... Uh, this novelist from Nigeria was talking, and she was talking about the singular story of what is Africa, and um, having to dispel that singular story through multiple different sorts of narratives. Um, but it occurred to me in the context of our work here, and our, specifically the idea of physicians writing memoirs, um, that the very notion of the healthcare provider, the physician writing a memoir, um, bursts open the singular story of what it means to be a doctor, or what it means to be a nurse, or what it means to be a healthcare provider. Um, in that, um, in that, um, those memoirs kind of add a uh, multivocal, right, a, a complexity. Um, those memoirs introduce different faces, different voices. Uh, different political viewpoints um, to what we consider to be the narrative of what is a doctor or a good doctor, if you will. Um, in fact, uh, I myself uh, wrote a memoir a number of years ago, now I realize 10, um, after graduating uh, from medical school, from Johns Hopkins, um, and I'm pleased to say that about you know three people I wasn't related to Reddit, but um, in the process of writing it, the critical thing um, that it did for me was it got me traveling around the country and speaking to medical students. And um, in fact, I was meeting with a medical student earlier today, um, and she brought up 
the memoir. And um, the idea that, boy, other doctors out there really are not, you know, exactly the same, right? There is a multitude of ways to be a doctor. There is a multitude of ways to be good at this profession. Um, and I think that it's this variety in medical stories and doctor stories um, that we debunk the notion that there is this one monolithic narrative called the doctor. And I think it's this sort of narrative complexity that we here in the program seek. Um, and to me, that's uh, really how today's talk um, is resonating. Um, Dr. Jauhar tells us in his memoir uh, that his father, um, who was a scientist and not a physician, so, so a real doctor, as he was fond of saying, right, um, said, and tell me if I'm right, non-science is nonsense. Yes? Was, so his father was apparently fond of saying this. And yet I think it's through this very um, non-science um, practice, which is writing, right? Uh, the very non-science, perhaps, of words, the very art of words, rather, um, that Sandeep Jauhar sheds light on the complexities of medicine's very human science, um, that he sheds light through his words on medicine's frustrations and triumphs and glories, and yes, even a little of its nonsense. Right? But it's through the process of accompanying him on that journey that we get to know a little bit more about medicine and hopefully a little bit more about ourselves. So it's with great pleasure that I'd like to introduce Sunday Shatner. Thank you. I used to come to these things when I was a fellow here. Uh, six years ago, I trained in heart failure. And uh, so it's, I say with all sincerity, it's a true great honor for me to, to come here and, and talk about my book. And um, Sayantani always speaks so eloquently about narrative. And when I hear her talking about it, it really strikes me that you know, telling stories is sort of the great equalizer in uh, so many fields of human endeavor because, you know, we all have stories. Uh, people like to hear them. Uh, you don't have to be especially smart or accomplished to tell them. Um, and so it's... Uh, and, and, and narrative, stories, just such an integral part of what we do in medicine, you know, uh, in making diagnosis, um, in how we communicate on the wards. And so medicine, I think, sort of naturally lends itself to uh, the writing profession. I think that's one of the reasons why we see so many doctors now who, who like to write. Um, I'm going to talk a bit about the book, but before I do, um, in talking with Sayantani about you know how I should... Um, you know, introduce the reading. Uh, I think I'll talk a little bit about how I got into writing because I think that judging from the uh, the reception that I've gotten in, in other venues with medical students, that seems to be really a, a, a real point of interest. So, so I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that and how I started writing for the New York Times, and then 
how that sort of segued into the book, and then I'll read a couple of selections from the book, and then I'll take questions. So, um, so I, you know, as Sayantani mentioned, I, I grew up with a father who had no interest in, uh, in, in non-scientific pursuits. Um, actually, I take that back. He had a lot of interest, but, you know, for him, as with a lot of immigrant Indian families, uh, pragmatism was a sort of overriding concern when it came to choosing a career. And, uh, and that was especially true in my family. And my parents really wanted both uh, my brother and me and my sister, too, to become uh, doctors. And my brother sort of knew from a very early age that he wanted to be a doctor. But I had, I was confused. And I, I was confused, uh, you know, throughout my childhood about what I wanted to do. And um, so I ended up going to Berkeley and uh, studied the hardest science I could find, which was physics, because I was just intoxicated by the mysteries of the universe and particle physics and relativity and quantum gravity and all those things. And um, now I wasn't especially good at physics, but, but I was very curious about it. And so I worked at it. And I ended up <clears throat> going into graduate school. And like a lot of graduate students, uh, at that time, especially in the hard sciences, I became disillusioned with what I was doing. And what sort of contributed to my disillusionment was, uh, I think a big part of it was a very close friend of mine got sick. And um, in an effort to help her, I started going to support group meetings um, of uh, other patients with lupus. And I started talking to doctors, and I figured, you know, you know, we can figure this out. And uh, so I sort of brought this naivete that graduate students very often have, which is uh, that if I work hard enough and apply myself, uh, I'll figure this out. And little did I know back then, uh, which I well know now, and I think most of you understand that medicine doesn't have the answer to many questions. Um, I think the majority of questions. But I stuck with it, and in the course of spending time at these meetings and talking to doctors, I became interested in, in, uh, in medicine. So I applied to medical school, but at the same time, uh, I always had this sort of itch to write. Uh, but it was largely went unfulfilled. I took a couple of classes in, in, in college, but nothing serious. So I applied to medical school, and uh, prior to going, I applied for an internship. Now, there are a couple of different ways to start writing for the medical students who, and, and doctors who are interested in writing. One is to, um, to just write, okay? But few of us have the stomach for all the rejection that will... <laughs> naturally come from that sort of uh, path. Um, I tried that a little bit. I, I sent out query letters and, uh, you know, to magazines who I th that I thought would be interested in what I had to say, but most magazines were, were, were uninterested, especially when you don't have clips. So I decided to apply for an internship, and I applied for a fellowship, and I ended up going to Time Magazine. And... Uh, 
And that really was the start starting point because once you get in and you're interested in writing, then it's very hard to get, kind of get out of it. Um, and so that just it was a slippery slope at that point. I went to Time Magazine, and you know I learned skills there about how to research a story, report a story. Um, the first week I was there, they um, they had uh, they had me go to the Capitol building to interview Bob Dole, and so I learned very essential techniques for eliciting information, getting information from important sources. Like with Dole, I figured, okay, you know, he's a fairly old guy. He's going to have to go to the bathroom at some point. So, um, and I think he had a prostate condition too. So I figured, okay, I'm just going to hover around the bathroom while the other reporters go, you know, hover by the the, the entrance to, to the Senate chamber. And I figured, you know, I'll get a chance to talk to him. And I did. And uh, I stuttered out what I needed from him, and he completely ignored me. Uh, but about half hour later he uh, uh, he came up and as I was being blown off by his press secretary he said uh, you know this is Sandeep Jahar this is what he needs he works at Time Magazine and set up a phone interview tomorrow so you know I guess that's the sign of a successful politician he, he picked up what he needed to know um, in any case I, I went spent the time in at uh, Time Magazine, and, uh, and then I went to medical school. And, uh, and I quickly became disillusioned with medical school for various reasons. I think um, part of it was that I wasn't sure if this is what I should be doing, and, and to be honest, I wasn't sure if I could handle it. Uh, and so I ended up calling the, uh, the bureau chief at Time Magazine, and I said, look, you know, uh, you know, can I come back? And he said, no. no. <laughs> Stay where you're at. Um, you, have no, you, you, just, you have no idea what you're talking about. And, uh, and I think he said phrases, he used phrases like ink-stained wretch and all, all, all sorts of things about how what, he, what I was doing was much more noble and much more rewarding than what he was doing. And I said, well, you know, come on, just, Dan, give me some names of people I can call on. So he gave me a few names, and and I said, uh, you know, this was a reputable newspapers like the Miami Herald, and I said, yeah, that, that's that's all fine. But what about the New York Times? And he said, uh, okay, fine. Well, I know this guy there, so I ended up writing these names down, and I went back to Gross Anatomy, and for a few weeks, I was just like, you know, doing what I was supposed to be doing, and then and then I started uh, thinking, well, you know, you know. What would be the harm in reaching out to this this uh, this fellow at the New York Times? So I called him up one afternoon, and uh, you know, it's you know, it, it's all about serendipity, right? I mean, you don't uh, you can't expect these things; they sort of just happen. And and with him, it turned out that he actually had lived on the street that I was living on in St. Louis, and and he'd actually been a reporter and grown up in St. Louis, and. Um, and he thought I was a reporter in St. Louis. He thought I worked at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, which I didn't. And so um, by the time we, we talked for about 10 minutes, by the time I sort of explained to him that this was, that I was a medical student and, uh, and I'd like to talk to him about writing for his newspaper, uh, he had turned and said, you know what, next time you're in New York, give me a call. 
we'll meet and uh, we'll set up a time. And I said, uh, okay, that's fine. And, uh, you know, so you all know what happened. And I hung up the phone, called American Airlines, booked a flight to New York. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Told my dad that I was uh, taking a few days off from medical school. And... uh, which he totally didn't understand. And, uh, and I said, okay. So, and so I went to New York. And, and I went to the New York Times building. And, uh, and, I was, and there was a lot of confusion about you know, who I was and what, what I was doing there. And, and uh, so this, you know, I sort of had to stay out in the front for about a uh, half hour, 45 minutes, as they figured out whether I should actually be led into the building. But they eventually let me into his office. And... And, uh, you know, on the walls were pictures of famous people. And, uh, and I realized at that point, you know, I, I really don't know what I'm going to tell him. Uh, but, you know, we'll, we'll figure it out. So I was there, and, and he came in. And, and so his tone had changed um, uh, because it was the middle of a, of a busy news day, I'm sure. And he said, look, I have five minutes. What do you want? And I said, well, you know, and then I sort of explained that, you know, I... I'm a medical student, but you know I really like to write, and um, and, and 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 people say I, I, I write well, and so I you know can I write for you? And he said, well, show me your clips. And I said, well, you know, I, I don't I, I don't have any clips. I have no clips. And he said, well, you worked at Time Magazine. Show me your reported pieces. And I said, well, you know, actually. You know, I can explain, but they didn't really, like, give me my byline when they were supposed to, and I sort of had this long explanation, and he was just like, look, this is, you know, I, I committed the biggest sin when, it, you know, in talking to an important person, which is completely wasting his time. And so he said, look, this, this is not going to work. Uh, you should go back to medical school. And, um, and I said, well, can you, uh, can you give me an internship? And he said, uh, I think he said the last person we gave an internship to had been on a Pulitzer Prize winning team (laughs) at at a local newspaper. So he said, you don't even qualify for an internship here. And I said, okay. So, you know, crestfallen. You know, I said, okay, fine. And and I was just getting ready to leave. And then he said, look, just wait. And he he picked up the phone and, and asked, he said, send Libby in here. And it turned out he was asking... Uh, Elizabeth Rosenthal, who is a uh, is a doctor, uh, she actually ended up training at New York Hospital where I was, and uh, she was uh, she was an ER physician and she worked at the Times, and so she came in and and said, you know, look, you know, you know, I, I appreciate what you're doing here, and you know, you want to, you know, you, but this is not the way you do things. Um, and, you know, there's no way you're going to get into you know, writing for the Times like this. Um, so you should go back to St. Louis and go to medical school. And if you're really interested in writing, get an internship at the local newspaper, get a few clips, send them to me, and, and, that's, um, and that's what I ended up doing. So I got an internship in St. Louis during my second year of med school and um, spent, I think, two afternoons a week. We had a transcription service, so I didn't have to be in the lecture at that time. So I just read the, I read the transcripts and, uh, and I went and I went to did this internship. And I sent her my clips and I'm sure she didn't read them. Um, but, 
in the end, I ended up applying for a residency in New York, and I came to uh, your sister institution on the east side, and and then I met with um, one of the editors at the New York Times, and she gave me an opportunity to start writing about internship and, and residency. Uh, the book was actually originally envisioned as a collection of my pieces. I had written about 40 pieces during my residency, and uh, so I figured, look, you know, I'm just going to take these pieces and, um, you know, staple them together, and this is my book. And uh, it didn't occur to me that all the pieces were all available online, you know, and that, <laughs> and, 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 and that no publisher was ever going to go for it. And, you know, I think I figured, you know, look, you know, if Atul Kalande can do it, well, what's, what's, what's... Um, but, um, so it didn't really work out, but the publishers that I spoke with, the one I ended up going with, Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux, really wanted a different kind of story. Uh, they wanted me to sort of bag the essays and really write an original what they call the Bildungsroman. How did you become a doctor? How did you discover yourself in the process of training? And um, and I, I know you. Um, and uh, and that's what I ended up doing. Uh, and so I started the book in 2003 when I was at Columbia, actually, uh, on the heart failure team. And, uh, and I finished it in 2006. And I think internship is just a great time to write about medicine and get into writing because, you know, you're seeing everything for the first time in a lot of ways. Um, and the layers that develop, that, that put insulation between you and the patients, that inevitably develop as you go on in your career, just aren't there you know, in internship. So you're sort of the front line in a lot of ways. And then you're also seeing everything for the first time. And so it forces you to ask, if you're inclined, to ask questions about what you're experiencing and, and, and you, know, you know, why are we putting in this uh, feeding tube in this, um, you know, uh, elderly man with dementia who tells me that uh, he'd rather die than not taste food. Well, why are we doing this? And so these are the things that stimulate, uh, at least in me, a desire to write and to sort of work out the things that were, were bothering me about internship. At the same time, you know, you're sleep-deprived. It's sort of a naturally dramatic time. Um, some of the sort of... Um, the, uh, the respect and uh, the... Uh, you know, that, that develops in medical school towards your attending superiors, it sort of breaks down in this crucible of, of sleepless nights and whatever. And you start questioning people, doctors, and the profession itself. And that sort of naturally lends itself to, to, to writing about it. So, um, so I, I wrote the book well after the fact, but I had kept copious notes during internship because I was trying to figure out this experience and and uh, um, and uh, you know and see what it meant. I really had no interest uh, when I was keeping these diaries to actually write about my uh, my internship. But then when the opportunity came along, I I, I took it. Um, 
So maybe at this point what I'll do is start reading a little bit from the book. And uh, you know, what I'd like to do is, I think, read three passages. Uh, uh, two are fairly short, and one is... Um, one is a little longer. I think the first one I'll read is, is, is uh, the longest one. And this is about the, um, the road trip, right? So the road trip, you know, as every house staff uh, member here knows, is like sort of a rite of passage, right? So you, you, know, you, know, you don't do it as a medical student. Um, they won't let you, right? But as an intern... That's your, that's sort of a, a, a central um, a transition in in becoming a full fledged doctor. Is that they entrust you to take a patient in the middle of the night, usually or after hours, to you know some procedure, and patients are often critically ill, and uh, and anything can happen, and you're responsible, uh, and you have backup, but we all know how that works. So. Um, so I, I started my internship in the outpatient clinic. So I was, you know, I think I was, my training in, for all intents and purposes was delayed by a month because the outpatient clinic was really pretty easy and, and there wasn't that much to, to, uh, to really challenge. Um, but my second rotation was the CCU. And um, so this is my first road trip. Mrs. Williams needed a CAT scan. She was on a stretcher in a tangle of wires and tubes, a woman of about 70 with thinning gray hair and a church-going face. A nurse was giving me instructions for the road trip. Just keep the monitor on her at all times, she barked, like a quarterback calling out a play. She picked up a section of clear plastic tubing, This is your arterial line, and this here is your central venous pressure. I'm going to disconnect it. You don't need it. This is the heparin. This is the nitroglycerin. She pointed to the bulky yellow monitor at the foot of the bed. The yellow line is your oxygen saturation. That's your heartbeat, and that's your blood pressure. She reached underneath the stretcher where a green metal canister was lying on its side. That's your oxygen. It should last about 30 minutes. She paused to take a deep breath. This is your code box, she said, holding up a sealed gray box that looked like a mechanic's toolkit. Inside it were drugs, epinephrine, atropine, lidocaine, that I had never used. Just break it open if you need it. Of course, if she arrests, you're going to use the paddles. I nodded. I had never used defibrillator paddles before. You charge it like this, see? She turned the knob back and forth quickly. 100 joules, 200 joules, 300 joules. See? My face must have betrayed terror because the nurse offered an almost sympathetic smile. Don't worry, she said. If you need to, you can always call a code. The middle of the night road trip is an intern rite of passage. Steve and the other residents had done it, and there was no reason to think that I couldn't do it too. A young black man in dreadlocks and lime green scrubs showed up. He was my escort. Without a word, he grabbed hold of the back of the stretcher with one hand and a metal ivy pole with the other and maneuvered it to the double doors. Then he punched a plate on the wall, 
the doors flung open, and we were off. Coming out of the CCU, with me holding onto a side rail, we tried turning left, but the stretcher went crashing into the far wall. Oh my, Mrs. Williams exclaimed. (laughs) She had few teeth, hollow cheeks, and kind of gummed her words when she spoke. I didn't know much about her, except that she had been admitted to the CCU with chest pains. That was pretty much all Amanda, my co-intern, had signed out. We rolled the stretcher down the checkerboard tile floor toward the freight elevator. Even at this late hour, I could see white-coated men sitting on stools in the satellite pharmacy, sorting pills. Their presence was both creepy and oddly reassuring. More banging, but we managed to steer the stretcher onto the corrugated metal floor of the freight elevator. With each bump, I checked to make sure the IVs were still connected. An EKG sticker had come off her chest, dangling uselessly on a wire, making the heartbeat tracing temporarily go flatline before I pressed it back on. We rode up to the sixth floor in silence, except for the reassuring blip, blip, blip from the monitor. Coming out of the the elevator, we made a left and rolled up a, a ramp and down a hallway, past the pediatric oncology wing. Suddenly, we were in an old part of the hospital. The corridors were lined with beat-up chairs and rusting file cabinets below peeling paint. We stopped at an intersection. I looked up from the monitor nervously. I hope you know where you're going, because I don't. My escort's flat, somber expression did not change. I've, I've only been here two weeks, I tried to explain. Without a word, he turned left. A couple of turns later, we entered a darkened hallway. It had a faintly chemical smell, like that of a dark room. This is it, he mumbled, disappearing into a room. From the corridor, I could see a a donut-shaped CT scanner sitting on a metal gantry that looked like it could use a good scrubbing. After a couple of minutes, the escort came out and started walking back in the direction of the main hospital. Hey, I called out, where are you going? Call me when you're done, he said without turning around. What's your number? I shouted, but he was already gone. A burly technician with tattooed arms came out of the room. Okay, doc, bring her in, he said. I rolled the stretcher up to the radiology table. Mrs. Williams was now even more tangled up in wires and tubes. Her rumpled gown was was slipping off her shoulders, exposing her breasts. The pulse oximeter had long since come off her finger. One of her ivy lines had somehow made its way between the side rails. I disconnected it, looped it back over the railing, and quickly reattached it before any of the medicated fluid dripped onto the floor. The technician pumped on a pedal below the stretcher, raising it to the same level as the scanner. Then I pulled on a latch and lowered the side rail. Give me your hand, Mrs. Williams, I said, reaching across the gantry. Hold on, Doc, the tech said. We've got to give this line some slack or her IV is going to come right out. He pulled the metal pole in closer, but it didn't look like the tubing was long enough. He stared at it for a few seconds. Can we stop the drip? He asked. Sure, I replied automatically. (laughs) Which drug couldn't be stopped for just a few minutes? I disconnected the line and reached again for Mrs. Williams' hand. Doc, she's going to need some help. He went and got a white sheet, 
Okay, pull her onto her side. As her face pressed up between the rails, he quickly tucked the sheet under her body and rolled her onto her back. Then we grabbed the sheet on each side and slid her over onto the scanner table. This is only going to take five minutes, I said, patting her on the hand. The tech and I went into the tiny control room. Don't you want to be able to see the monitor, he asked me, taking a seat at the console. Uh, yes, of course, I said. <laughs> I ran in and turned it around. Digital images of my patient's head soon appeared on a computer screen. What's the scan for, the tech inquired, adjusting a knob. After a pause, I said, I'm not sure. In all the excitement, I'd forgotten to ask. The first images looked okay. Now it was time for higher resolution cuts. She's got to lie real still for this next scan, the tech said. I peeked into the room. Mrs. Williams' head was still in the scanner. Try not to move, ma'am. We're almost done. She groaned loudly. I don't feel so good. Oh, Lordy, I don't feel good. What's the matter, I asked. My chest is hurting, she said. Just my luck. Only one more pass through the scanner and now she was having chest pain? That's okay, I said. Just try to keep still. She shifted her weight uncomfortably. But I'm getting these pains in my heart. We'll take care of it once the scan is finished. You don't have to come back here, do you? She didn't answer. So please, just lie still for a couple of minutes so we can finish up. I was focused on completing the scan, whatever the indication for it was. Let's do it, I said, returning to the control room. Are you sure, Doc? The tech replied skeptically. Yes, I'm sure, I snapped. The tracings were fine, her heartbeat was regular, tasks were piling up back in the CCU. I did not want to have to bring her back. Midway through the final scan, she started moaning. Oh, Lord, oh, my. Thirty seconds, the tech said, his eyes peeled to the screen. The mumbling got louder, and her feet started shifting from side to side. Oh, Jesus, help me, she groaned. All right, Doc, he said, punching off a lit button. I think we got what we needed. We pulled Mrs. Williams back onto the stretcher. Oh, Lord, oh, Jesus, get me out of here, she wailed. I clenched my teeth to keep from laughing. For a moment, the whole situation seemed rather comical. What was I doing here in the middle of the night, in this abandoned corner of the hospital, with this tattooed technician and this helpless old lady? The whole road trip had been so nerve-wracking. I was just glad that it was over. I quickly reconnected the IV line and turned the machine back on. Beep, beep, beep. I turned the machine off and tried again. More beeps. And now a red light started to flash. I tried silencing the alarm, but it kept ringing. The rotors started whirring in my head. The IV had been delivering nitroglycerin. Nitroglycerin is used to treat angina. I turned the machine off and tried again. Angina means decreased blood flow to the heart. I punched the buttons on the, on the front panel. Decreased blood flow can cause chest pain. I squeezed the bag, trying to get the, the drip restarted, but all I got were more flashing lights. Then it hit me square in the gut. My patient was having a heart attack. Her moans and the alarms mixed into a dissonant instrumental. I spun toward the tech. 
Do you have any nitroglycerin? He looked at me like I was a lunatic. I flipped open the code box the nurse had given me. There were vials of lidocaine, epinephrine, atropine, saline. No nitroglycerin. Damn it! I screamed in my head. Steve had told me to carry a bottle with me at all times, but I had, I had ignored the advice. Now I was in a full-blown panic. I have to get her back to the unit, I cried. Can you call transport? I already did, the tech replied, nonplussed. But he said it would take a few minutes. I can't wait. Can you help me bring her back? He looked at me helplessly. I can't leave, Doc. I'm the only one here, and there's another patient on the way. I grabbed the IV pole and the back of the stretcher and started racing toward the elevator. Tell transport to catch up with me, I shouted. I swerved, barreling into a chair, backed up, and tried again. If she dies, this is going to be your fault, I screamed in my head. You'll be fired. Risk management will have to get involved. How did you get yourself into this mess? Why did you insist on finishing the goddamn scan? You're going to be okay, Mrs. Williams, I said, trying to mollify her as she started to shriek. The nurses are going to give you some medicine. You're going to be just fine. We got to an intersection. Which way? Earlier we had turned left, so now I had to turn right. Simple calculations were eluding me. For a moment I thought about stopping it, stopping it to call a code. But where was I? It was the middle of the night, and I was in the middle of a vacant corridor. How were you supposed to call a code anyway? Who were you supposed to ring? Where were the phones? God, I prayed, if you get me through this, I'll be a better doctor. I'll take things more seriously. Please, just let me get through this night. Back at the freight elevator, I struck the, I struck the button furiously, and the doors opened. On the ride down, her cries were deafening. When the doors opened, I saw the escort. He appeared to be waiting for me. Oh, thank God, I cried. Help me get her back. Without a word, he took the back of the stretcher and we raced it back to the CCU. On the way there, I tried to explain what had happened. I stopped the nitroglycerin drip and she started having chest pain, but then I couldn't get, to get it restarted. He didn't appear to be listening. This was my mess and he seemed to want no part in it. When we rolled into the CCU... Three nurses materialized immediately. Evidently, the tech had called ahead to tell them I was on the way. We couldn't get her into the scanner, I said breathlessly. I stopped her nitroglycerin. I couldn't get it restarted. Maybe there's air in the line. It's her nitroglycerin. She's having chest pain. We'll take care of it, the nurse who had sent me out 45 minutes earlier said calmly. I wasn't prepared for her sympathetic tone, and almost instantaneously tears filled my eyes. I felt guilty, undeserving of her empathy. I stopped the nitro and she started having angina, I said again. I didn't know what to do, so I brought her back. You did the right thing, the nurse said. We'll take care of her. I was so on edge that I felt numb. I hovered as the nurses whisked Mrs. Williams back to her room. As they got her into bed, I continued trying to explain my actions from the door. We finished the scan... I probably shouldn't have disconnected the IV. It's okay, the nurse said. She smiled broadly. Congratulations. You just made your first road trip. <laughs> then it goes on, but I'll stop there. Um, 
So after the CCU, uh, I went to the uh, general medicine wards, and that was a very different experience. Uh, as, as everyone who's done residency knows, the CCU was sort of like, you know, you know, nonstop, right? And, uh, you know, and we were allowed to wear scrubs every day. And just, you know, even the, even the term scrub, you know, sort of explains, you know, what, how the CCU was different. And then the medicine ward, uh, you know, we, you know, we had to wear the usual khakis and a button down and a tie. And, and it was very different. Um, so I ended up going to a, a medicine, general medicine ward, uh, which was sort of general medicine and, and, and some HIV uh, also. And, um, uh, and and this is a very short piece about the, for lack of a better word, the ecology of the wards, of ward life. Um, mornings on 10 North were a collective phenomenon. It was like the budgeons, Sonia, now my wife, and I once attended in the West Village, where a few people would start chanting, Om Namah Shivaya, Om Namah Shivaya, and then people would start clapping, and the clapping would synchronize, the energy grow, and then you were one, a collective being. Life on the wards was like the plasmons I had studied in condensed matter physics, where individual electrons moving randomly coalesced into something greater than the sum of their parts. There was a sort of synchronized buzz. You could almost hear it, the hum. You could see it, the mass of doctors and nurses and social workers and case managers and utilization reviewers becoming one organism, running around doing seemingly random things that were so amazingly coordinated. In the midst of this collective excitation, I kept thinking, why am I so lonely? Ward life as an intern was a constant juggle of competing tasks. You could be speaking to an attending when a nurse would interrupt and tell you that the blood test you had ordered for that morning somehow got overlooked, and now you had to draw it yourself. And oh, by the way, the patient has kidney failure, and the last serum potassium was at a life-threatening level, so you'd better hurry up before the patient has a cardiac arrest. It was hard to develop perspective because everything seemed equally necessary. Ensuring that the radiology department received the requisition slip seemed as important as the scan itself, perhaps even more important because it was your job to ensure that the slip was faxed and received, not sitting in a corner somewhere. Tasks got reduced to their most elemental quality, done, not done. The rhythm of the day was digitized into tiny boxes to be filled in at every hour. Having so much to do was bad enough, but not knowing why you were doing what you were doing was terrifying. Why was I ordering a tagged red blood cell scan? That CAT scan, should it be done with or without dye and with high resolution cuts or not? Why exactly was I calling the Infectious Diseases Service, whose famously distempered fellow seemed to relish tearing into diffident interns? I was constantly afraid. When you didn't know what you were doing from moment to moment, it seemed like anything could happen. Patients were needy, their demands overwhelming. Sometimes they'd want you to linger so they could talk, especially the VIPs, 
would tell you about all the hospital fundraisers they had chaired, or the money they had donated, or the philanthropy they had performed. But none of that really mattered. Not because I was egalitarian or inured to wealth or power, but because for an intern, nothing is more important than finishing up and getting the hell out of the hospital. Sometimes after a long day, I'd simply walk up to the bedside and place my stethoscope on a patient's chest without any pleasantries or preliminaries. One time I did it when a patient was sitting on a bedside commode, straining to have a bowel movement. I've been sitting here so long, she said mournfully. The least the nurse could do is give me toilet paper to wipe. I told the woman that I'd find a nurse for her. But first, first, could I just listen to your lungs? I loathed myself for even asking, but it was the end of the day and I didn't want to have to come back to conduct my exam. I had her lean forward on the commode, all the while thinking, has it come to this? Have you lost all shame? Everyone seemed to know how the place worked except me. Don't you see I'm waiting for the chart? A transporter would shout while I was on hold with the lab. I'm sorry, I'd say. I didn't realize you were waiting. And then she'd turn to a colleague as though I had said the most incredible thing in the world. He said he didn't see me standing here. Ha! (laughs) The colleague would murmur her support. If I asked where my patient was going, it would lead to further rebuke. Taking him where? To x-ray. Not only had I been inconsiderate, I didn't even know what test my patient was having. People always acted like you were doing something wrong, but they wouldn't tell you what it was. Sometimes I'd be sitting by myself in a corner, and someone would come up and say, Pack it in, honey. You can't always be getting in people's way. My brother had warned me to keep the nurses happy. If they liked you, they'd look out for you, keep you from going astray. Without doubt, they were powerful, but their power was only in the inverse. They couldn't really make things better for you, but they could certainly make things worse. The ward clerks were generally rude and abrupt. Leafing through their tabloids with their long, false fingernails, they would barely look up when you asked them a question and then only impatiently. The ecology on the wards was hostile. Interactions were hard-bitten, fast-paced. Conversations were brief, clipped, urgent, spoken at a volume and frequency frequency I wasn't used to or comfortable with. I kept waiting for a sense of hardiness, a sort of occupational pugilism to develop, but it never did. It seemed like the only people I wasn't scared of were my patients. They were as much at a loss in this place as I was. Um, I'm going to read one last passage and then take some questions. Um, so, so everyone knows about you know being on call, right? So you're on call and you know it's the middle of the night and uh, and a patient um, you know has a fever and so you have to go get blood cultures, right? And, uh, and you have to order a chest x-ray, you know, if you suspect pneumonia, and there's sort of a lot of work to be done, and then you're being called in various uh, cross-coverage issues. So, so this passage is really about sort of being on call, and it's, you know, about another sort of rite of passage for an intern, which is um, 
the, uh, the sundowning uh, nonagenarian in the middle of the night. Okay. Sometimes I worried about how I was going to get through another night on call until I realized that my patients were helping me. Their bodies had homeostatic reserve, the capacity to self-correct, to compensate for my mistakes. In physics, an oscillator quickly returns to its equilibrium position after being displaced. And so it is, I came to believe, with the human body. Most of my patients were going to be fine, despite anything I did. And if they, and if they were going to die, well, that was probably going to happen despite me too. Health was like the wilderness. It could only be spoiled by human intervention. We're not saving patients, Rajiv, my brother, told me. We're just stabilizing them so they can save themselves. I became awed by this concept, but most of my colleagues seemed indifferent to it. We performed our interventions with such confidence, such arrogance, but most of the time there was no way, no way of predicting whether we were doing the right thing or even a good thing. We'd give potassium for hypokalemia or diuretics for edema or nitroglycerin for high blood pressure and we would overshoot. The diuretics would make our patients dehydrated or the nitroglycerin would lower their blood pressure too much and then we'd have to give them intravenous fluid or raise their blood pressure with other drugs and the process would start all over again. Sometimes we would give drugs just to treat the side effects of other drugs. Sometimes we would do illogical things like giving fluid and diuretics at the same time, and no one questioned it, including me. There was too much going on, too much complexity to start asking questions. I wasn't sure where to begin. I wasn't even sure I knew enough to know what to ask. My energy was low, my enthusiasm was flagging, and the system was in automatic drive anyway. The easiest thing to do was to get out of the way. When the nurses woke you in the middle of the night, you had to be prepared to deal with the unexpected. You knew that energy, clarity, fluent speech were coming. You just didn't know when. One night I was half asleep when I got paged. Must be blood culture time, I thought, reaching for a phone. In the dark, the receiver vibrated like an image from a jittery screen projector. When I called the number on my beeper, an urgent voice told me to go to Mrs. McDougall's room. When I got there, it was as if I had walked in on a play. Mrs. McDougall was standing precariously in the middle of her private room in a puddle of urine. Bright ceiling lights were beating down on her like stage spotlights. She was an attractive woman for 91, with a sharp patrician nose and handsome cheekbones like Lauren Bacall's. Her gown was open in the back, exposing her scoliotic torso, which was covered with age spots, like cow patties in a field. A nurse and two orderlies were circling her like muggers. They were trying to get her back to bed, but the old woman was insisting on going to the bathroom alone. We'll help you go in the bedpan, someone said, grabbing her arm to keep her from falling. I want to go to the bathroom, she shrieked, trying to wriggle free. We can't let you walk there. I'm not going in the bed. You're going to slip and fall. Leave me be. 
I was trying to keep from falling over myself. I tried reasoning with Mrs. McDougall, but she wouldn't listen to me either. After a couple of minutes of urging, I asked the nurse why we couldn't just let her go to the bathroom. She could break her hip, the nurse said indignantly. She could, but I don't think she will, I replied. I can go by myself, Mrs. McDougall cried. I know, I said, but let me walk you anyway. I offered her the crook of my arm, and, much to my amazement, this appeal to her ladylike instincts seemed to work. Off we went, with an aide on either side, to the toilet. An aide went in with her while the rest of us waited outside. She's sundowning, the nurse said, clearly irritated, referring to a kind of nocturnal delirium often observed in nursing homes. Before you leave, order restraints. Do you think that's necessary? I asked skeptically. What if she sundowns again? Just call me, I replied. People in the hospital were always obsessing about disasters that never occurred. I had seen it myself in the CCU, where nurses would use PRN sedative orders to keep patients groggy and cooperative through the night. When Mrs. McDougall came out, I walked her back to bed. You're a nice young man, she said. Thank you, I replied. I like you. Well, I like you too. That was the nicest thing I had heard all week. I was going to show these nurses that a little kindness could go a long way. The next page came about 45 minutes later. When I arrived back in the room, the scene was much the same as before, except now Mrs. McDougall was standing in a slurry of feces. She was yelling some of the vilest obscenities, cocksuckers, motherfuckers, that I, I had ever heard from a nonagenarian's lips. The stench was overpowering. I cupped my hand over my face, but the putrid odor just still registered in my olfactory lobes. Mrs. McDougall, I cried through my fingers. What are you doing? Who the hell are you? She screamed hoarsely. Dr. Jahar, I said, incredulous. Don't you remember me? You promised you were going to stay in bed. I need to go to the bathroom. I ordered her back to bed immediately. You're not my doctor, she shouted. Call Silverman. Tell him to get me out of here. I told her that Dr. Silverman wasn't available. Get out of my way, she cried, swinging wildly at me. She slipped and fell into my arms, rubbing brown excrement onto my scrubs. Steadying myself, I felt my right sandal slide a bit. The nurses were looking at me with, I told you so, satisfaction. <laughs> For a moment, I fantasized about putting Mrs. McDougall into a chokehold and dragging her by the neck to, the, to, the be to bed, elbowing the nurse and orderlies out of the way, hissing, screaming at them to end this godforsaken shitfest. But of course, that couldn't happen. I had to deal with the situation calmly. Give her five of Haldol and two of Ativan, I shouted <laughs> as I tried to keep her from tipping over. Yes, doctor, the, the nurse responded sarcastically before going out to get the medicine. The two aides and I managed to force her back to bed. When the nurse returned, she administered two intramuscular injections. 
Almost immediately, Mrs. McDougall stopped struggling. Within minutes, she was snoring heavily. I felt momentary relief. Until the reading from the pulse oximeter started to drop. 99, 98, 97. Pretty soon, an oxygen mask was plastered to her face, and I was turning a knob counterclockwise on the wall. 94, 93, 92. The brief calm quickly turned into another round of panic. Why, why had I been so impulsive? Was there an antidote for Haldol? Should I call an ICU console? Where were the nurses now? For the next couple of hours, I remained at her bedside, watching her snort like a pig. I stabbed her wrist with a needle to get an arterial blood gas, which revealed borderline oxygen and carbon dioxide levels. I prayed the doctors would, I prayed the drugs would wear off. Why had I, why had I allowed myself to be goaded so rashly? In an effort to protect her, or perhaps myself, I was afraid that I had killed her. It was an apt metaphor for my internship thus far. By the next morning, Mrs. McDougall had returned to her sweet, great-grandmotherly self. At lunchtime a few days later, nurses, social workers, and people with nondescript titles like coordinating manager met to discuss patient disposition, who was going to be able to go home, who was going to require long-term care, and so on. Rohit, my resident, told me to attend on his behalf. At the meeting, everyone seemed to be having a rollicking good time talking about the patients, exchanging gossip about family dynamics and so on. The subject of Mrs. McDougall came up. Dr. Jahar had a wrestling match with her a few nights ago, a nurse, uh, a nurse said, and everyone laughed except me. Someone asked where Mrs. McDougall was going to go once she left the hospital. Her daughter wanted to put her in a nursing home, but she wanted to go back to living independently. No way that's going to happen, someone said with a certitude I found troubling. Someone asked me for my opinion. I'd had so little interaction with her, just one unfortunate incident, that I wasn't sure how to respond. I was wary of saying anything that could send her to a nursing home for the rest of her life. She had been delirious, no doubt, and a danger to herself, but she had also been in an unfamiliar environment with people she thought were trying to hurt her. Surely that had to enter the calculus for predicting future behavior. It was anyone's guess what she would be like in a more familiar environment, and wouldn't putting her into an institution just increase the likelihood of further sundowning? I thought of the Chekhov story, Ward Number 6, and the incarceration of Yefimich, I did not want to be responsible for institutionalizing another person. I had seen it before on the psychiatry wards. If someone said they were well enough to go home, we would say they lacked insight into their disease and keep them even longer. Where was Dr. Silverman, I wondered. We were discussing the future of a stranger over sandwiches and soft drinks, and that was beginning to seem normal. So I'll end there. Thanks. Thank
since you've been out practicing? Is that softening or is that distilled into one direction or the other? You know, I, I'm much more willing to overlook the excesses now, in, in, in all frankness, than I was as an intern. Because I'm just so used to it, you know. And you know, at, when I was an intern and, and and as a resident, also, you know, you see the things that occur in intensive care units, and you see the sort of um, just pro, you know just excess. And you know, especially for me, it was very bothersome. And you also see a lot of the uh, the tragedy and the and the family politics and the. You know, it's a very complicated place, and there's a lot that drives um, spending and and utilization in intensive care units. It's not just doctors trying to you know do more and more. You know, it, it's complicated, and I, I appreciate that more now. Um, but you know, it, I, a lot of what I do now is intensive care unit cardiology. You know, and I think I'm more um, aware that um, that intensive care units you know, do perform good in certain situations, um, but I think that we do spend uh, a, a lot of money, uh, a lot of resources, and um, and inflict a lot of pain on people uh, who are terminally ill. And, um, and and some of it is driven by by the system and um, by how um, you know the, the the you know the sort of freight train you know when when you when you get admitted to the um, um, or it's sort of a steamroller you know it, it you're, you, once the patients you know before patients come into the ICU you know you have a sense of well, you know is this really what we want to do. Um, uh, you know, the patient, uh, you know, you know, has very little time to live, and, and and once they get there, there's this sort of steamroller that sort of flattens all ambivalence, you know, and and uh, and one one step leads to the next, and there's sort of this sort of inexorable march toward, you know, full on, full blown critical care, and um, and and you know, it's worrisome, it's worrisome, but. No, I think in certain situations, intensive care units can do a lot of good, but um, I think the way that um, most of them run is, uh, you know, it leaves a lot to, to be desired, and, and I think this should be a central place where we start reforming the system. I think we're moving more, I hope, toward a, um, a, a model that recognizes that a lot of patients with terminal illness and end-stage congestive heart failure is very terminal, unfortunately, um, would trade time, uh, longevity for quality of life. And we don't... Uh, that's really not part of our paradigm right now. So I think that's one central place where I think we can really improve patients' quality of life is recognizing that. 
Um, congestive heart failure is a very vibrant field right now, and there's a lot going on, and that's one of the reasons why I decided to specialize in it. Um, but, you know, with all the devices and the new drugs coming out and, the, and you know, the defibrillators and, and the artificial hearts and all that, um, I think heart failure succumbs to this notion that um, very often that, that longevity is all, you know, and a lot of, you know, patients don't want that. And, uh, and the fact is that we spend uh, inordinate amounts of money uh, prolonging life for three months or six months. Um, some of the seminal trials were done here at this institution. And um, so that ha- is going to have to enter the calculus and how we proceed in the field, I think. Um, you know, part of it is just, I think it's just good medicine, and part of it is that this inevitable push toward, you know, bending the cost curve in medicine. And it has to be done. So. Oh, hi. been one who tries to um, find people who share the misery, <laughs> you know, and so I think in that sense there is, um, I, I, I'm hoping that that interns, residents will find some solace, you know, because it is only one year and it's a year that's completely life-changing, but, you know, you do get through it. And the reason why I extended the book into my middle of my second year is because uh, I just realized that I was a much better second year than I was a better first year. Um, it was just I, I just had my skills were much more uh, attuned to being um, a second year resident and than they were as an intern. So you know the year will end, and you know part of uh, the reason why I wrote the book was also for you know, lay readers, you know, patients, and to sort of give one side of how I think the hospital works and what needs to, to be changed. And um, and at the very least, you know, I think that as people read the book, I mean, some people may respond with fear that, you know, is this the way the hospital really works? But I think I my hope is that, and I've, judging from the emails I've gotten from people, that, um, that this actually came, comes to pass, that a lot of people will look at it as um, a, 
a source of knowledge and ultimately empowerment. You know, if they see something that's not quite right, not to assume that, you know, that their, their doctors are infallible because, you know, because they're not and we know it. And I think it's important to express that. And I'm certainly not the first person to express that. And I think that there's um, been a real shift toward exposing the fallibility and sort of the underbelly of medicine. And, um, and, I, and I, you know, but I, I, I wanted to leaven that, um, the, the, the horror stories with, <clears throat> you know, moments of uplift. And, uh, and I'm hoping that got through as well. So, yes. You're now in a position to prescribe what the intern of the future will be under your command, or at least under your influence. And Larry Smith, who's a superb person at doing these things, will certainly be involved. Yes. How would you prescribe a different experience for the intern, which might leaven the bad times, which you take three nice examples? Or maybe you also had 15 lovely times. But what, how would you prescribe that the attendings, uh, which you now are, should design the internship to, to ameliorate the experience? Well, oh, and that is, um, I mean, that's a very complicated question, but very apt, and uh, it's something that we need to address as a profession. Um, you know, there is... I think a certain amount of misery that has to be preserved in the internship experience. Okay, you you, know, you can't ameliorate all of it, uh, and you do learn a lot from you know a road trip where you're un, you know you go unsupervised and and potentially make a fatal mistake. You learn a lot from it, and unfortunately, you know it's the the. the the grand sort of secret of teaching hospitals that it's an open secret and, and you wonder why patients don't call you on it more but we're learning on them and uh, and and it's just part of the way that the system is structured you know we we, we need to learn to train future generations yeah I'm personally um, you know after having thought about it a long time, and maybe part of it is because I am so removed now from you know the sleepless nights and the training phase or whatever. But I think that I learned a lot from my internship experience, and I I think only so much can be taken away and still preserve the core of the experience. Um, you know, I I worry about cutting down the hours too much. Um, I. I worry about creating the sort of shift mentality that a lot of people have written about. Um, it is, uh, you know, it's worrisome. You know, one of the first weekends I was in attending, uh, I, um, I'm, I'm a cardiologist. I was consulting on a patient who had she had had a massive stroke um, within minutes uh, before I saw her, uh, and actually the intern who was signing out said yeah I just saw her she was totally fine and now you know she she had obviously had a massive stroke so um, you know and it was a Saturday and I said look you know you need to do this this we, we need to get the CAT scan we need to take her to, to the scan and we need to call neurology we need, you know we need to cons consider doing um, you know giving a thrombolytic you know all, all sorts of things and the intern said look you know my, you know, my time is up 
you know, this is this is this is the new rule, you know, that I'm supposed to leave by ten o'clock, and if I don't leave, I'll get in trouble. He was more than happy to leave too, you know, and uh, that's worrisome, you know. I think that you know you're substituting one evil uh, for another, and uh, and it's a much bigger evil, I think, to sort of abandon your patient when they're when they're in the throes of something so acute like that. So that's that's worrisome. And then, and then on the flip side, you have interns who say, you know, I'd, I'd like to stay. I'd like to attend these rounds. I'd like to attend this new conference because this professor's coming. But they're not allowed to stay. And that's, that's also obviously a big problem. You know, um, people learn in different ways. And, you know, some people, frankly, can spend 80 hours a week in the hospital and actually do a pretty good job with it. Because... Some of the work that we do is, um, you know, is very sort of ske- you know schema driven. You know, it's it's sort of like complicated tasks that you master because it's, it's procedural. There's not a lot of sort of thinking involved. And I think um, when people look from the outside and they say, "Well, how could you possibly, you know, look at a you know you know uh, a patient's electrolytes and think about how you're going to." you know, replete them and, you know, well, you know, this is something we do. We can do this almost half asleep. Um, so I think that some things we should be able to do. Um, and the, f- the fact is that I think people learn differently and some people are more um, apt to thrive in a, in a, in a system that, that is very time-intensive in- and others won't. And, you know, it there may come a time when we have to, you know, tailor, individually tailor the curriculum and the training depending on the, the, um, the needs of the individual trainee. Um, but, um, but at this point, I think I'm sort of firmly in the camp of people who think that we have, um, uh, we, we have gone too far in terms of cutting down on hours and, uh, and, 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 and all these things. not close off the discussion, but rather just change its manifestation. Um, if uh, you know, you're all uh, willing to uh, stay and have some refreshments, uh, I think Dr. Javro will be willing to stay up here and chat with people individually and also sign books. Um, and also remember that you know it's a time to chat with one another. This is a room where papers get written and collaborations made. So uh, you know, do that as well. But please join me in thanking.